Junior Doctors Corner, the podcast that helps medical students and junior doctors like yourself not only survive but thrive in your careers. We cover topics including doctor well-being, career, and life outside of medicine. My name is Dana and I am your host for this podcast. Are you ready for a healthy dose of support, motivation, and inspiration? Then let's start this episode stat. Hi, Dr. Charlotte Durand. Thank you so much for joining me on Junior Doctors Corner. Thank you very much for having me. I'm pretty sure a lot of our listeners already know you. You are quite a prominent figure when it comes to social media, uh, especially in the medical industry. Um, So it's uh, really exciting to have you on the show. Uh, But just in case we have some listeners who are not familiar with your amazing work on social media and uh, now in the podcast space as well, please share with us a bit about yourself. Oh, thank you very much. I don't feel like I really <laughs> have earned that kind of an introduction, but I appreciate it. A bit about myself. So I am originally from Victoria. I grew up uh, down on Phillip Island. I moved to Queensland for medical school and was at JCU. I did some time in Townsville and Cairns. I spent my junior doctor years working on the Sunshine Coast where I was an intern and a resident And then the last couple of years, I've been working in Darwin as an emergency registrar. I'm doing the ASIM training program. Uh, Outside of work, I like to try and do a lot of sport when I can, when it's not the middle of the wet season, doing a bit of triathlon and lately a bit more mountain biking and some adventure racing. So all sort of very stereotypical ED reg stuff, really. (laughs) So... Um, thinking back to um, when you were an intern, so you would have, uh, like you mentioned, been at Sunshine Coast. Uh, do you remember what it was like to, you know, work in ED for the first time, your very first ED rotation? How did you feel? You know, um, were there any memorable moments, good or bad? Yeah, I do remember it quite vividly, actually. I did, my emergency rotation was the last rotation that I did for the year. And for me having ED at the end, it was really useful for me because I'd been through the other specialties. So I'd seen a little bit of what I might encounter in the emergency department. And so I found it a little bit easier because it takes me a little while to feel comfortable and to warm up to things. Um, And so having done all those other rotations first, I found that really useful. In saying that, I did find the emergency department really intimidating. Uh, It's the first time that you really get to see a patient on your own for the first time and try and figure out what's going on with them. But it was also, I think, one of the most fun rotations for the year because you really get to use the skills that you are taught in medical school. There's a great team atmosphere. I really loved the hustle and bustle and the you know, moving around a lot and the teamwork and the working collaboratively with, you know, uh, the pharmacists and the nurses and the other allied health teams as well, you know, and to get to really interact with patients and meet them as they come in the door. No matter where it is in the year, it's really daunting because there's so many new things. Like you've got to look at eyes, at ears, there's fractures, you're doing casts, there's like little babies, there's complex social stuff. And it's kind of just going from one to the other really quickly. And so every day 
everything is new. And so those first few weeks can just be a whole lot of like sensory and brain overload, but it's just so satisfying and rewarding. And so being able to develop those skills that you get throughout your emergency term where you can get information out of someone really quickly is one of the sort of joys of doing that rotation because you really feel like you're becoming a better doctor. And so I really loved that. One of the things that I remember the most vividly is doing my first fascia iliaca block, which is where you use local anaesthetic to anaesthetize sort of the nerves that provide the sensory sort of input for the hip. So if someone's fractured their hip, you can help give them pain relief. And it was such a daunting, terrifying, unknown procedure for me, but I had a consultant who walked me through it step by step and was really lovely and really believed that I could do it. And that kind of memory has really stuck with me. She had since completely forgotten about it, (laughs) which just goes to show how run of the mill it was for her to sort of teach an intern how to do a procedure. But that stuck with me as well as little things like some of my, one of my favorite registrars helping me do an ultrasound guided cannula when I tried to get one in and couldn't get it. And there's also those like hard memorable moments where you remember the first time that you see, you know, something pop up on an, on an x-ray or a CT and you think, look, that's probably a life-changing diagnosis. And you're the first one to see it. And the first one to really feel the weight of that. And, you know, that can be really, really hard. And also the first kind of time where you either missed a diagnosis or misdiagnosed someone. And it doesn't really, you know, you're so well supported as an intern that those kind of things don't really matter. But if you're like most people in medicine, you like to get things right. So those kind of things <laughs> can be can be challenging and memorable as well. Yeah, I agree with um, quite a few points that you made there. I certainly love that you had to be multi-skilled and, you know, um, you really feel like you're practicing medicine rather than being a paper monkey on the wards. Mm, Absolutely. (laughs) I think um, what kept me from pursuing uh, the ED path was I really, really hate night shifts. Uh, yeah um, (laughs) I just also could not stand the idea of just discharging patients and never seeing them again and I guess that's why I've become a GP so I can like yeah you know nurture them and they'll be my little chickens you know yeah I just follow them along as opposed to being like bye I don't know what happens to you next (laughs) even if you drop dead I have no idea yeah yeah it can be really daunting like grappling with there's a lot of unknowns in emergency and you can't ever have all of the information and it's being comfortable in that space of not having all the answers and still making decisions and that a lot of people find that really challenging and certainly when you go from other specialties into ED the the change in sort of perspective and the way things are done and the change in priority is really really interesting yeah yeah absolutely um So I was also, like you, uh, very lucky to have Edie towards the end of internship. So I was a little bit more confident. But for those of our listeners who are interns about to start um, and Edie first up, Mm -hmm. um, they're super nervous. 
Do you have any tips or tricks for them on assessing and managing patients in ED uh, quickly and efficiently? First of all, having emergency first is not a bad thing because the rest of your rotations, you will be so all over it on the ward. The nurses will be like, oh, can you come and review this patient? You'll be like, yep, totally got it. Know what's going on. Great. You'll have that confidence to actually assess a patient on your own. So don't feel that if you have it first, it's something bad. Um, The sort of second thing, as an intern, you absolutely do not have to be fast. Like if you are too fast as an intern, people will get worried because they think you're not being thorough. So you don't have to be quick, but you have to be solid. Senior staff, registrars, consultants, the nursing team leader, they expect interns to be thorough and they expect you to not be the quickest person in the department. So don't worry about being inefficient. Sure, you should probably see, you know, you need to see more than like one or two patients a shift, but it's better to see a few patients and do it well than pick up 10 patients and have no idea what's going on anywhere because then it's just just chaos and that's not fun for anyone. The other thing I would say is they... Expect you not to know everything and they are more than happy if you just ask questions. It sounds so simple and people say this all the time, but if you just don't, if you don't know something, just ask. And if you don't know something, just say you don't know. Little things, big things. If you if you're unsure about something, no one's gonna judge you, no one's gonna think you're an idiot. Just ask the thing because there's so many uncertainties and so many unknowns in medicine, in emergency, I still say that I don't know things all the time. And, you know, it's such a cliche, but there's a reason that we keep repeating it is because it's true. The opportunities in ED that I would say to grasp a hold of is so many skills you can work on and so many things you can do to improve. So from your practical things like putting in cannulas. Yeah, it's really easy to just sit back and like let the superstar boss nurses who cannulate all the time just whack in all the cannulas for you. But then you can't hide from cannulas the whole time. Like I was someone who cannulas made me so nervous. I hated doing them. I like actively avoided doing cannulas. I mean, I'm sorry, but you have to learn sooner or later. And it's much easier to learn in the ED than it is at 2am when you're doing ward call in PGY2 and there's no one else to help you. So practice your practical skills, get in there, ask to help put in the nasogastric tubes, ask to help put in the IDCs because soon enough you'll be a registrar and you'll be like, oh, when's the last time I did one of those? (laughs) Um, The other sort of stuff is your clinical skills, like your uh, history taking, your presentations and your management plans. You can go beyond just recounting the history and exam for the consultant. So what usually happens is the intern will go and see a patient, we'll take a history, we'll do an exam, we'll come back and give the story to uh, either a registrar or consultant. Some interns will say the history and the past medical history and the examination findings and then stop. And that's fine. But if you 
think you know what's going on. You can give an impression. You can come up with a management plan and then say, this is what I want to do um, investigation-wise. This is what I want to do with the plan and this is what I think the patient needs. And if it's wrong, fine, adjust your plan a little bit. But just practice um, practice doing that kind of stuff because you will improve out of sight over time. My final tip is with regards to medical notes, and that is if it's not in the notes, it didn't happen. So particularly in ED, particularly if you're discharging patients, particularly if you tell them something or if you do something or if you give them advice, come back if X, Y, Z, put it in the documentation um, because at the end of the day, if it's not in the notes, it didn't happen. And, you know, that's something that I see sometimes people writing very short, very succinct, um, but very blank notes. And I would caution against that. Those are some very good advice and tips. I just want to go back to the point where you mentioned always ask questions. And I have Mm. to say, ED is just, for me anyway, after working in so many different um, emergency departments and even interstate as well, I find that it's just that one specialty that is very supportive of its staff you don't quite get that same effect all across other specialties Um, Mm. and so when it comes to an intern you know asking for help I think you might have covered a little bit of this you know in terms of when to ask for help it's anytime Mm. you're not sure about anything yeah Um, but who should they ask for help should they really be you know ED so fast-paced and sometimes it's sort of a bit overwhelming and you you sort of second guess yourself should I be asking the busy registrar or should I be asking the busy consultant (laughs) so asking for help in the ED can be really challenging because everyone seems so busy all the time and you already feel as a junior whether you're a student whether you're an intern whether you're a resident sometimes as of registrar even, you feel like you're being annoying by asking questions. However, since I have become a registrar and have junior staff asking me questions, it makes me feel really uh, comforted when my junior staff ask me questions because I know that I don't need to check on them. So if they're asking me questions when they're not sure, I know that I can leave them to go and do what they're doing. And if they reach something where they're not sure of of what to do next or they're not sure of the diagnosis or they're not sure whether a medication is appropriate, they'll come and ask me. And so I don't have to worry about them. But if someone is off doing work and they never ask me anything, then I feel like I have to keep checking on them. So it's actually by asking either your registrar or your consultant questions when you run into them, you're actually causing them less stress, if that makes sense, (laughs) Mm -hmm. because they can rely on you to Mm -hmm. just pop back over when you've got a problem. Mm -hmm. In terms of who to ask, um, basically I would say in the first instance, ask who you feel comfortable asking because it's daunting enough. So if you find I used to always 
prefer to ask the registrars questions. And the good thing there is that it's less intimidating, but sometimes, and it's easy when you're an intern to think that all registrars know the answer to everything. However, sometimes your registrar will be quite junior. Sometimes they might not know the answer. They should, if they don't know the answer, direct you to the consultant. Uh, But I think sometimes it's important to say that whether you're asking a senior RMO or a junior reg or even a senior reg, they may not know or be able to give you the right answer. And sometimes the consultants will prefer for junior staff, particularly interns, to ask them questions directly. So it's important, I think, to establish at the start of a shift, you'll introduce yourself to the consultant who's on for the day and say, if I have questions as I go, should I speak to you or should I speak to a registrar? And often they will tell you. And then you've set it up and you know what to do. Uh, You should never feel overwhelmed, out of your depth, or like you're treating patients on your own as an intern in ED. That absolutely shouldn't be the case ever. So there's literally people there for you to ask. And you can even ask, you know, if you've got questions about, if you're worried about a patient, you can also speak to the nursing team leader and say, I've got the guy in bed 14 and I'm worried he's really sick. And they will also, that will flag for them as well and they'll have a look as well. So you, there's heaps of people in the team that you can ask and no one is ever going to, you know, be annoyed that you've asked for help with a sick patient or for something when you're not sure. So, yeah. That's a really good tip. So just establish what the rule is at the start of the shift. What about when it comes to referring patients to other specialties for mission. Mm. <laughs> so, you know, even mm. though in within ED, ED everyone's really supportive and approachable, <laughs> it's not always the case, especially with the surgical guys, um, <laughs> um, you know, trying to convince them to <laughs> take the patient. Do you have any advice or, um, you know, any kind of um, words of wisdom uh, to share with our, even I would say when I was a resident, I still found it really challenging. It's a really interesting interface between the emergency department and the rest of the hospital. And it's one of my sort of, it's one of my favourite, I want to say favourite areas and one of my favourite sort of topics. And something I'm really passionate about is the team beyond the ED and the way that the emergency department staff interact with the inpatient teams and how that all works, like from a sort of almost like from an anthropological, like social science point of view, the way that teams exist and work within the emergency department. And I think it begins with there's a couple of sort of key points here, and one is that the emergency department is the source of work for much of the hospital. And that in itself is a bit of a deterrent um, for people to be overjoyed when someone from the emergency department rings, which is fine. And that's how it happens. You know, if there's a place in the hospital where the majority of all your work comes from, when that place calls you, 
you know that it's going to be more work for you. And if you're already really stressed and you've got a lot of work already, it's just another thing to the pile. So there's that kind of aspect of it. And then there's the sort of aspect of you've got really junior staff in the emergency department who are referring patients who maybe don't have either the depth of understanding of exactly why the patient needs to be admitted. I know I certainly did as an intern. My consultant would say, oh, this patient needs to be admitted. And I'd be like, okay, okay. And then I call and they're like, well, why do they need to be admitted? And I'm like, oh, well, because my boss told me. <laughs> like, and that's fine if you're an intern because if the consultant has also seen the patient, they think they need to come in. It's helpful to have asked your consultant <laughs> what the key features are that make the patient sort of need to come into hospital because then you're able to sort of not only learn but also convey that to the inpatient team because that's what they want to know. Like what does this patient need to go to theatre now? Does this patient need, you know, two days of steroids? Um, and the sort of the other thing is some of the phrases that I really don't like in the emergency department is when people say, oh, I've got to sort of sell this patient or I've got to convince the team to admit them. I rarely have had situations where I have had bad interactions on the phone with inpatient teams. Like some of my best friends that have come from, you know, the sunny coast and working in Darwin as well have been inpatient registrars that I'm referring to. And so I really like to try and work on that relationship. And one of the ways to do that is obviously the most important person in this whole equation is the patient. And we need to make sure that we've got the patient's best interest at the centre of what we're doing. And if your focus is the patient and your focus is what's best for them, then you're going to come across in more of a collaborative way than if you are thinking, I've got to get them in, I've got to sell this patient, I've got to something, you know, figure out a way to like kind of, you know, it's like putting a square peg in a round hole, like you are trying to get them in the hospital. Whereas if you think, well, actually, you know, they need to be an inpatient because of this, this and this, and we can't do that in the however many hours they're going to be here, the GP is not going to be able to do that. If you've done a good workup, some good investigations, and you've you've got an understanding of what's going on, usually the referral process can be more of a collaboration rather than a us versus them situation. In saying that, referrals are hard. It's communication at the core of it. And you have to be both succinct and accurate. And the way you make the referral and the way you are on the phone is almost as important, if not more important, than the content of the actual scenario. And so as an intern, I found it really hard to know what people wanted to know on the other end of the phone. And so I kept like a little book and every time someone would ask me, so I'd make a referral to say like, uh, the orthopedic team, and they'd always want to know, does the patient smoke? When did they last eat and drink? You know, what are their major comorbidities? Are they diabetic? And so I'm like, okay, I'm, you know, I'd write that down. And so next time I would be able to say, oh, I've got a patient, they've got this, they last ate here, they have diabetes and they don't smoke. And that way you can sort of target the sort of high yield stuff, what they want to know straight up. And I think that means they have to ask less questions, it's less time and it's less 
dare I say, annoying and uh, having in front of you things like the most recent set of OBS, knowing what the blood sugar is, if it's, you know, that's usually quite relevant, um, plus or minus having a VBG nearby or something like that. Um, but look, at the end of the day, you cannot always please everyone. And if someone, you know, we know that if someone is short with you on the phone or mean to you on the phone, firstly, it's absolutely unacceptable. But secondly, it's almost never about you. And it's one of those things where, you know, a lot of a lot of work has been done in this space and a lot of hospitals really work on trying to improve collaboration between teams. Uh, a few years ago, I um, sort of took that like list of things that I'd been collating over the over time and put it all together in the uh, in like a referral cheat sheet which I think a lot of the interns that used it at the time found it useful um and if you you know at the end of the day if your focus is the patient and their well-being then if you come from that point you can't go too far wrong those are some really great words of wisdom. Um, I wish I had those cheat sheets when I was going through <laughs> internship, uh, but never mind. I've made it out through the other end. <laughs> okay. Um, so before we um, finish up with the final question that I ask all of my um, podcast guests, mm-hmm. uh, was there anything else you would like to add? I would like to add that. In general, being an intern, regardless of where you are, what rotation you're doing, you know, what's going on in your life outside of work, it's a big change and it is a big stressor and there's lots that's new and you essentially change jobs every 10 weeks and your learning curve is so steep. And so I would encourage people to make sure that you have whatever your support system looks like, both personal and social, whatever you do to look after yourself, whatever you do to connect with your loved ones, whatever you do to check in with your body, mind, everything. It sounds really sort of, I don't know, it sounds like every kind of intern talk from the beginning of time but it's so important to develop good habits for stress management um for a stressful job and it will get you so much further if you are able to check in with yourself every now and again and make sure that you've got friends family loved ones around you that can also check in with with you as well because it's you know working as a doctor is a team sport and we need to sort of keep those connections around us to make sure that we are able to bring our best selves to work so that we can not only give great care to our patients but also enjoy this job that it brings me a lot of joy being at work which sounds you know, ironic, I guess, because it's so busy and crazy and 
COVID times and all that kind of stuff. But I get a lot of joy out of being at work with my team. And that is what I would wish for everyone. And for those who didn't know, you have a podcast on studying for the FASM Yes, yes, I do. So it's for the uh, ASIM primary exam, which is yep. the one that you sit in your provisional year of, or you're eligible to sit from your provisional year of training. Um, it's basically the sort of study group that I had. I've just roped in everyone from my study group and beyond to uh, go through some practice questions. Um, and it's called Primary Cast. And it's also online at uh, what is the website? ASIMPrimaryPodcast.com. And um, yeah, if you're not doing the ASIM primary, it's maybe quite dry, but uh, <laughs> we have a little bit of nerdy fun. So if there is anyone listening who's a junior doctor and uh, looking to sit the exam, better check out the podcast. So final question, I think you did allude to this a little bit already, but if you don't mind fleshing it out, mm. please share with us who or what has been keeping you sane during these very crazy times. <laughs> I'm still undecided about the concept of work-life balance because I don't like the idea that it's kind of one or the other, but nevertheless, that's how we kind of divide our lives up into work and outside of work. It doesn't come without deliberate planning and effort for me. So I'm a big scheduler. I'm a big sort of, I love a task list. I love checking things off the list and I will fill up my off days with absolutely a million things. And so what I have started to do, which I find really useful, is literally just schedule in fun things, which sounds silly, but it's what I just have to do. So I will schedule in fun activities with friends. I will schedule in physical activity. I will schedule in, I'm a massive extrovert. So I need my people around me. I'm forever sort of, I'm always either on the phone or out to coffee or meeting up with friends or doing something together, like going for a swim together or something like that. So I guess knowing yourself and whether you're kind of person who needs all that social interaction or whether you find that really exhausting, you just want to be at home on your own with the book. That's also something I enjoy doing. Keeping well in terms of physical health is important to me because it makes me sort of feel more energized at a baseline for my life. I've tried in recent years to improve the amount of creativity that's in my life. So doing things like uh, more like artistic kind of things, doing more reading and doing uh, a bit more writing. The other thing that no one talks about really, which is important for keeping sane, is outsourcing stuff that you just don't have time for. So when I first started as an intern, I with my first paycheck, I'm pretty sure I hired a cleaner because I was like, I don't have time for that anymore. And there I've got an, you know, a couple of hours a week of free time now for me because I'm not scrubbing the floors, which is not, that's not something that brings me joy. So I just don't do it. <laughs> and the other thing I really love, uh, if you're a podcast kind of person, which I am, is there's so many great um, 
podcasts around that feel like really solid chat with a friend or you know almost like pseudo therapy where if you listen to Brene Brown or mm. you know I really like there's just so there's so many around and she is fantastic and mm. my mind feels rejuvenated once I listen to something that she has uh, like a talk or one of her audio books and so something like that I can really recommend so putting all those things together, a tiny little bit each week. Uh, the moral of the story, I guess, is just keep trying everything until <laughs> until you find the balance that works. Yeah, I definitely need to add that whole cleaner to my list thing. I can't believe like I studied for my fellowship exams whilst doing all the household chores and everything. Yeah, no, like you're a doctor. You don't need to (laughs) be scrubbing the floors. Just get someone else to do that and, like, you don't have much time. Your time is precious. And the same with, like, you know, controversy, mowing the lawn. It's not my jam. Don't want to mow the lawn. I will pay someone to mow the lawn. And um, it's just, yeah. All right, you've convinced me. (laughs) You won't regret it. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for your time, Charlotte. And thank you so much for sharing all those amazing nuggets of wisdom. No problem. Absolutely anytime. If you really liked that episode, please don't forget to leave a review on iTunes to help a sister out. And don't forget to subscribe to our email list so that you never miss an episode. 